You pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you, our one God, and we give thanks for one faith and one hope and one baptism, which bring us into one body, the body of Christ. And I thank you for Christ, who is our head. And I thank you, Lord, that as you are indivisible, we are indivisible. So help us, I pray today, to hear the word of the Lord that our choir has sung so powerfully As we read your word together, I pray, Lord, that your promise will come true, as it always does, that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish everything that you intend today. I pray that it would begin in me and then in each of us so that we might be who you have made us to be, the body of Christ on mission in this great world. And we thank you, Lord. For the privilege of trusting in you. With the psalmist we say, we've been trusting in you for our whole lives. And we count on you, God, because you have always proven to be trustworthy. Worthy God, we give you your worship your worship today. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good. All the time. Some years ago, Pastor Larry Bertrand and I, before we even knew each other, were uh, over in Atlanta, Georgia. We were a part of uh, a gathering of 40,000 preachers in one great big baseball stadium. And the preachers they brought to preach to us did not disappoint. People like Chuck Swindoll and Henry Blackaby and Evie Hill and Tony Evans. And maybe the most understated of the group was an author who was a pastor in San Antonio, a man named Max Licato. You may have read one of his books along the way. And that day he stood before us to sort of set the table for the rest of the preachers. And he talked about how all of us were gathered on one fellowship. And we have this in common, he said, on this great ship called the church. We all know the captain. We all have a personal relationship with him. All of us have walked across, as he said, the gangplank of grace. And the truth about this ship is it is unsinkable. And our captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, cannot fail. Of that we have no concern, he said. But there is some concern, he said, about the disharmony among the crew members. And as he spoke that day, he said, for instance, there are some who are serious about the study of the captain's words. They take that very seriously and think everybody ought to be very serious about it. And this group of people, he said, cluster in the part of the boat that we call the stern. There are those, he said, who love to pray. Not only do they love to pray, but they think we all ought to kneel when we pray. And those, he said, gather and cluster in the area that we would call the bow. Just stay with me here. Now, he said, there are those who who think that every Lord's Supper ought to have real wine in it, and they meet on the port side of the ship. And oh, how we tend to cluster, he said, as he described the church. He, He referenced that some think that once you're on the boat, you can't get off. Others think it would be crazy to jump ship, but it's up to you. Some believe you volunteer for service, while others believe you were always destined to be on that boat. Some think we'll hit a storm of great tribulation right before we dock, and others think, no, we'll be safely ashore when the storm hits. And then there's the issue of the weekly meeting, and some think it ought to be loud, and some think it ought to be quiet, and some want ritual and others spontaneity. Some want to celebrate so that they can meditate, and some want to meditate 
so that they can celebrate. And oh, how we tend to cluster. And the consequence is a rocky boat. There's trouble on deck. Fights have broken out. Sailors have refused to speak to each other. And there have even been times when one group refused to acknowledge the presence of the others on the ship. And most tragically, he said that day, some adrift at sea have chosen not to get on board the ship because of the quarreling of the sailors. Paul Bilheimer was right when he said the continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been, he says, Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. How then shall we live? Would you open your Bibles with me again to the book of Ephesians? We've had a two-week uh, halftime here, and now we come back to the book of Ephesians. I think last week's uh, worship service and message about being um, a family and um, taking church home with us was very important. And now, if you will, let's stand together as we read God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Our choir has sung beautifully, thank you, about unity in diversity. We'll think more about diversity next week and the maturity that comes when we learn unity in diversity. But let's start today with the foundation of our unity. Hear the word of the Lord. Ephesians 4 verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Thank you. You may be seated. I will not soon forget our gathering on Thursday night when we honored the veterans in our midst, when I um, had the chance with you to see a sort of roll call of the saints, these great men and at least one woman of God, I think, were, were listed there and their accomplishments, their branch of the service. It was a moving time. I'm determined to get my father, Jake, down here for that next year when we have it. I think he will absolutely love it. And I thought that our former pastor, our pastor emeritus, Lester Collins, spoke um, authentically when he told us about, about being the commander of a ship and a, a plane, a kamikaze pilot crashing just near his ship. And, and he told about the experiences of war. And then he looked us in the eyes, didn't he, and said, now we need to do what the Scripture says. We need to pray for those who are in authority over us. We need to pray, he said, for our president. We need to pray for our Congress. And I'm telling you, whatever Lester said at that moment after he told of his experience and the price he paid for our country, believe me when I say I would have done it. If if, if it were in agreement with Scripture, I would have done it. And I heard him loudly and clearly. Did you? And then when B.O. Wilkins, um, in his inimitable 
way, stood there before us as a former prisoner of war who fought in the Battle of the Bulge, for heaven's sake. I remember when I was a boy going to Bastogne, Belgium, and seeing where the Battle of the Bulge was and wondering what that was about. And then I saw that whole event personified in B.O. Wilkins as he told his story of unloading a railroad car and seeing the familiar planes with the United States insignia on them flying over and those very American planes bombing the railroad cars not knowing that those were American POWs down there who were um, unloading that. And if you've been through friendly fire, may I say, you have my full attention when you tell me what we ought to do. And listening to B.O. was authentic. And I say these things to give you a spirit of the Apostle Paul when he says, I then as a prisoner of the Lord. And I believe he immediately had the church at Ephesus in the palm of his hand. When he said, I am a prisoner for the very gospel that you have believed. I believe in that moment, whatever he asked them to do, they would commit themselves to do. And what he has to say is, we are all, that word then carries a lot of of weight there in in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, we are all then We are all then recipients of grace. Now we need to walk worthy of that. We need to give that grace its due weight. We need to live lives congruent with the grace we have received. And part of that congruency is having been reconciled to God once and for all. We ought to live lives that are reconciled with each other. We ought to live, he says. We ought to work hard. It's an imperative. We ought to work hard hard at unity and first he shows us how we can live in unity and then he shows us why we live in unity to look at it another way going back to Ephesians 2 verse 10 what he says is we are God's workmanship that's God's work we are created for good works in Christ it's God's work to make us united it is our work to live in that unity, to live lives that are worthy of the high calling that we have received. And he gives us not one or two or three, but seven reasons why you and I ought to live in unity with each other. And he reminds us of the greatness of our God. In essence, he says, unity rises from the very character of God himself. Is there one God? Then there is only one church. Is he indivisible? Then we must also be indivisible. How can we divide that which is indivisible? How can we separate that which Christ died for? How can we mistreat a brother or sister or look askance or down upon somebody for whom Jesus Christ died? We dare not, Paul says, Take lightly the unity that Christ purchased on the cross. So, he says, this unity that we seek requires effort on our part. Notice in verse 3, he says, work hard at it. Work hard at unity. How hard should we work? Harder than we can imagine. We ought to work very hard to keep the unity. I was walking through the house yesterday and there was some silly television movie on and the couple were talking to each other about the problems in their marriage and they said, well, we just need to work hard at marriage. And the one said to the other, but remember when marriage was easy? I'm trying to remember. Do you remember when marriage was easy? Remember when marriage was easy, they said. And didn't we always say that two people who have to work at marriage probably shouldn't be married at all? I just stopped and turned and looked at the members of my family in the room and said, that is the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. Of course marriage takes hard work. 
And so does unity. If you're going to live in relationship with other people, it's going to require your very best, your due diligence. Four things Paul talks about. First, it will take, um, as we look at this together, he says, if we are going to be united with each other, we will have to, verse 2, be completely humble. It starts, doesn't it? With humility. It is our pride that causes us to fight with each other. It's our sense of entitlement. The sense that that somebody like me deserves something better than that. That somebody like me ought not to have to work at anything. That people ought to just understand that somebody who's paid the dues that I've paid just deserves better than that. And all of that pride comes from the flesh and not from God. We are trophies of God's grace we, we didn't deserve the grace we received. So we are not in a position now to talk about what we're entitled to. We are only in a position to be grateful. And out of that gratitude comes a deep, a deeply rooted humility in our lives that sees ourselves not from our own point of view, but from God's point of view. How small is the world? I'm getting on a plane this afternoon, flying to McAllen for the Baptist General Convention of Texas, talking about unity, uh, going down there this afternoon. And when I get on that plane and look down, I remember one time flying with a friend of mine in a small, uh, in a small two-engine uh, plane. And as we were flying along, we flew over my house. And I said, look, there's my house. And he looked down and said, yeah, that's your house. I said, look, there are my kids playing in the backyard. I really couldn't see them. I just made it up. But I said, look, how small my house looks from this perspective. And if we could see ourselves from God's perspective, we would not be high and mighty. I remember one of the churches that I served years ago, the place, the only place we had to meet, it was a small church, the only place we had to meet for our deacons meeting was in the preschool room. And I'm telling you, when we were sitting on those preschool chairs, it was very hard to be high and mighty. I mean, when you're sitting on a two-year-old's chair, it just sounds kind of silly to start getting, um, you know, pontificating about this and that. And I'm going to tell you another thing. It just doesn't sound right when you're sitting in a two-year-old's chair. And Paul says, when you've experienced grace, the only right posture is the posture of humility. Just to say, what did C.S. Lewis say? Pride is the greatest of sins. It's the root of all of our other sins. You can tell how proud you are, C.S. Lewis said, by how much it bothers you when other people act with pride. And it bothers us a lot, doesn't it? And he says, if you think you're not conceited, you are the most conceited of all. It begins with humility. And then he says it involves gentleness. The word is meekness, not weakness, by the way. Strength under control. It is used by the ancient Greeks to talk about a stallion that has been tamed. I thought about Secretariat. Have you seen that movie yet? Melanie and I and Casey went to see that movie. And would you believe it? Secretariat wins all three of those big races in the movie. Just, just like in real Did I ruin it for you? It's just like in real life. No surprise there. But I was just marveling at this magnificent horse. I got home and I got on the internet. I just wanted to see how large this horse was, how strong, how powerful, how the story was really true. And looking at that just reminded me that Secretariat was a very powerful animal. But in the hands of the trainer and the jockey, was completely under control. To say that you and I will be gentle and meek is not to say that we will be weak, but that we will take all the power that God has given to us in our lives, all the gifts and all the abilities, and submit them completely to the sovereignty of the one Lord, Jesus Christ. So we have strength, but that strength is always under His control. I saw it in Weldon Funderburg. Did you... We had his uh, memorial service this week, and I was just reminded of the greatness of that, of that gentleman. And, uh, 
And just reminded of the words that he adopted as his motto when he was uh, just 18 years old. He co-opted Edgar Guest's My Creed. He wrote My Ambition. Here it is in his own handwriting. It says, to live as gently as I can. I think he did that. He lived gently. To be no matter where a man. To take what comes of good or ill and cling to faith and honor still. To do my best and let that stand. The record of my brain and hand. And then should failure come to me still work and hope for victory. This part got me. To have no secret place wherein I stoop unseen to shame or sin. To be the same when I'm alone as when my every deed is known. Is that you? Are you the same when you're alone as when your every deed is known to live understanding or undaunted, unafraid of of any step that I have made to be without pretense or sham exactly what people think I am. I read that this week and I thought, God, make that true in my life. Let me be without, let there be no secret place wherein I stoop to shame or sin, but to be exactly wherever I am, exactly who people think I am. I said at one of these conventions a few years ago up in Amarillo, I ran into members of First Baptist Amarillo, and one lady said to me, do you know my pastor, Howard K. Batson? He happens to be probably one of my five best friends in the world. And I said, I surely do. And I said, I want you to know about him, that when he and I are away from the church, He is exactly, when we are away from the church, the same person who stands up and preaches to you every Sunday. We need to live with gentleness, with humility and integrity, he says, with patience. We ought to be patient with each other. And you have heard that it was said by men of old, thou shalt not pray for patience, because if you do, you will have a very bad day. But I say to you, Always pray for patience. Why would we not want what God wants for us? God has been patient with us. We should be patient with each other. I read this week about that president who had such a promising beginning at a major university. He was the president of a major university. He was a young man. He was a Yale graduate back in 1897. Perhaps some said the foremost voice for education in the state of Texas during that period of time. And one day, one day he was preaching in chapel at his university and some of the students decided to play a prank and they brought a howling dog with them. Imagine college students acting that way. They brought a howling dog with them to chapel and eventually the dog disrupted the preacher so much this great president leapt off the platform, grabbed the dog and threw it out the window and then realized that he was on the third floor of the building. He uh, apologized profusely but it didn't work. A group of students led to his resignation saying, you must resign because you are a very bad man. People who throw dogs out windows are not fit to be presidents of universities. And he had to resign because of that. And all the the promise of his beginning was lost because he was impatient. And right on the platform on which he spoke were inscribed these words, no kidding, don't get mad don't be afraid. If only he had lived the motto that was written on the platform on which he preached. 
And my word to you is be patient with other people because God has been patient with us. Shouldn't his patience for us engender in us patience for other people so that we can disagree without being disagreeable? We can, we can love other people even when we have very different opinions. We can be diverse and be unified. To be unified is not to be uniform. It is not even to be unanimous, but it is to commit ourselves to the well-being of other people because God has given us grace. We become God's grace-filled, gracious people. I pray that for myself. I pray that for us, that we will bear with one another in love. What would enable us to do this? Well, the love of God in us would enable us. It's agape is the word there. It's God's unconditional love. The, the, the first century Christians co-opted that term and said, this is who our God is. God is agape. And he says, we should bear with one another in agape, in love for one another, we bear with each other. As Paul says to the church at Rome in Romans chapters 14 and 15, we should accept one another. We should love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you love one another. We've been having a problem in our house with the guinea pigs. I should have listened to Myra Pullen. She told me not to get them, but I did anyway. She said they're going to stink. I didn't believe her. Turns out they really do. And I was just talking with Casey about it this week, and I said, I just don't know. I don't know if we can keep them. I don't know what to do with them. I said, I just don't know. And she said, oh, we've got to keep them. And I said, well, who's going to feed them? She said, I'm going to feed them. I said, well, who's going to give them water? I'm going to give them water. Have you heard this before? Who's going to clean their cage? She said, I'm going to clean their cage. I said, but what about the smell? She said, I think they'll get used to it. I did. It'll be fine. (laughs) Well, we ought to bear with one another. We ought to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Listen to this. Make every effort to keep. We don't create the unity of the Spirit. We just keep it. It's God who creates it. We don't uh, gin it up. We don't, we don't, we don't make it, we just keep it. It's this unity that we have was created by God. It's a reality in which we may participate. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we don't create it. But this unity of the Spirit comes through the bond of peace. The, the Hebrew shalom, of the Greek arene, that, that goodness of God. Not just the absence of strife, but all the goodness of God. We hold on to that. And why, he says, look at this. Here is, here is why we should live in unity with each other. Because God has made a way. Because unity rises from the very character of God Himself. So notice in these seven ones that He gives us. And seven is a, is a number of perfection. He says there's one body. There's only one church. He says there's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all, and in all. Notice the first triad there. He says there is one body. That's the church. There's one spirit. You were called to one hope. What did Augustine say? Give me, he said, give me one Christ for my Savior. Give me one book for my study. Give me one church for my congregation. Give me one world for my mission. And then I will be a Christian and not a sectarian. I said to you last week, looking at this, when it says one one Lord, that's Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism. I told you last week, I think Baptists got the baptism thing right. I really, really believe that in the core of my being. But I have great fellowship with other Christians who see that differently. Some of my favorite pastor friends in the world um, were not um, immersed 
um, for baptism. Some of my favorite pastor friends with whom I have sweet communion. And we can have community with each other. We're probably not going to go to church together. We're not going to join our churches together and make one church out of them. But I thank God for their ministry in this city. I thank God for how he is working through them. And we don't have to agree on everything to be united in Christ. I thank God for the grace of men like Bill Henson and, and Dave Peterson who have befriended me and put their arm around me along with, with other pastors in our city through the years who have been my friends. And hear the word of the Lord. He says, we have all this in common. There, there's one body. There's one Holy Spirit. There's one hope. There's one Lord. There's one faith. That's the faith by which we enter into the family of God. One baptism One God and Father of all. There's only one God. And He is over all. And He is through all. And He is in all. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by Spirit and the Word. Jesus made the church. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church And so you and I ought to preserve the unity of the church that Christ created. And I love the way Christ's love is greater than all of our differences. And I know this is a divisive, fractious time in our culture. There are many factions and people have different points of view about so many different things. But I read a beautiful story this week about about the Urbana Conference, this conference of uh, Christian students from around the world put on by InterVarsity last year. 16,000 students attended from myriad countries. And they put them together in one big worship service and they divided up in, in small groups by their countries. And in one of those great big halls there at a convention center were the students from mainland China who were Christians. Imagine the challenges they have faced. And just across the partition from them were the, were the students from Taiwan. And across the partition from them were the students from Hong Kong. All of a similar ethnic uh, cultural background, but divided politically. Mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. Huge political differences. So they put partitions between the students so that they would have the freedom to worship with their own. But something happened in that room. It was the Chinese students who said first, What if we invited the others to join us in worship? And so they invited the the students from Taiwan and from Hong Kong. And the partitions came down. And they sang hymns together. And they prayed together. And it was so good that one of the students said, This is God with us. It could never happen in our country. But it happens here through Christ. The next night they invited the Koreans to join them. They invited the Japanese to join them. Huge political differences through history. All of those barriers came down through Christ. Can I just ask you, do you understand when Paul writes in the first three chapters that Jew and Gentile come together in Christ, how great those divisions were? As you walk out the door, just notice the little sign that says, no dogs allowed. We don't allow dogs on our playground. We don't have actual natural grass there. You can imagine how that would be a problem having dogs there. We don't throw them out third floor windows. We just don't let them use our our playground. I'm just saying. And if you see that sign, then you see the way a Gentile felt. When he tried to go into the temple and it said, no dogs allowed. And it wasn't talking about their canine pets. It was talking about them. You're telling me our differences are bigger than that? You're telling me blue states and red states are bigger than that? 
You're telling me styles of music? I looked at this. There's not one mention of instrumentation in this when he talks about what brings us together. He doesn't talk about what time we worship. He doesn't talk about what day we worship. He says, what you have in common in Christ is so much greater than anything that would divide you. Do we believe that? In our heart of hearts, do we believe that what we have in common in Christ is greater than anything? So we celebrate our diversity at Tallowood. We don't all do it the same way, but we all worship the same God. And by His grace, we walk in unity, not for our glory, but for His glory alone. And the Bible doesn't prescribe how we worship or when we worship or with whom we worship. But it has a lot to say about the way we treat each other. So make the joy of the Heavenly Father complete. Make your pastor's joy complete by being of one mind. Having the Spirit of Christ who did not claim equality with God but laid down His rights and emptied Himself so that we might not be a church divided but a church united. Will you pray with me? Father, thank You for the greatness of Your grace. Thank You for the power of the cross. We all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Lord, it's challenging in the 21st century. You know, Lord, the challenges we face to try to be authentic with what we believe and at the same time love people, love all people. And God, I thank you that you have shown us the way. We thank you that you are undivided and I pray that you would make your church at Tallowood undivided. And I ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ who is able to make it happen. Amen.